Um, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, today we're going to wrap up a series that we kicked off at the beginning of this month called Heroes. And this idea of this, this series, Heroes, is not about us putting on capes and jumping out in front of cars and lifting heavy things and laser blasting with our eyelids or whatever thing that could, we could blast lasers with. But this whole series around Heroes has been about us stepping into that life that's beyond the ordinary. I don't have to know you to know, I think at the core of you, when you imagine your life, that you want it to be more than just ordinary. I don't mean like average height and average weight. I mean, like you, you're probably not okay with getting to the end of your life and just having an okay marriage. No one stands at the altar and says, you know what, I commit till this day and till whatever day our lawyers finally terminate it, that we're, I'm just going to coast and I expect you're going to do the same because I'm okay with okay. Like, none of us want that. We don't want our finances to be okay. We don't want our relationship with our friends, our kids to be just okay. That deep down inside, what draws us to movies, what draws us to these kind of hero storylines is that something inside of us cries out for a life that's bigger than just surviving, that cries out for something more than just a life that's just subsisting and getting by. We want to get to the end of our life and know that it's made a difference and it's made an impact, that we want more than survival in our lives. We want to look at the end and see that we actually made a difference around us. I think that's what stirs inside of us. That's why the two largest movies this year so far have already broken a billion dollars, have been hero movies. The, the ones that will continue to break records this year and next are almost predictably hero movies. Because we want to be part of a storyline that's bigger than just our life. And that's what this series has been about, how to engage that storyline, how to take steps towards that type of storyline, and how to remove some of the barriers that maybe get in the way. And today, I want us to look at the last piece of this puzzle, if we're going to, to walk away from this series with a good handle. And surprisingly, it begins at Walt Disney World, and why you don't experience one thing at Walt Disney World that you would think you would. So Walt Disney World was built in the middle of wetlands. It was literally a swamp that Walt Disney had picked out and had skillfully purchased with a lot of shell companies so that no one knew it was him kind of orchestrating this big land grab that's about twice the size of Manhattan. On top of this wetland that he purchases twice the size of Manhattan, Walt Disney World is in Florida, which is no pun, no like diss on Florida, but Florida is literally a swampy state, right? It is a state, 29% of the state of Florida is covered in water. And yet, with the water presence, with the tropical climate, with the humidity, one of the things that I would be willing to place money on is that you've never been to Walt Disney World and been bitten by a mosquito. Have you? How in the world does in the middle of a swamp, the capital of a swampy state, that kind of swamp, wetlands, how do you not get bitten by a mosquito when everything would tell you that's the ideal place for mosquitoes? And you may think, why is this 
I hate mosquitoes with a deep passion. If I had a superpower, I would want it to be to vaporize mosquitoes. I have a big fly swatter, not just any fly swatter. That thing is electrified. I hit a button and I feel like I am a terminator and I swat and it's like, and it kills them and I stare at their carcasses. I hate mosquitoes. And one of the things that I appreciate about Walt Disney World is when you walk around, you don't get bit by them. This really is the happiest place on planet earth. That's all they had to do. And yet, it's extraordinary when you think about it. In a place where there should be mosquitoes everywhere, there's none. And the way that Walt Disney World has accomplished that has been through an incredible amount of intentionality, mind-numbing intentionality, a group of people who work together daily to accomplish something that is almost miraculous in its outcome. And the reason I believe our piece of this final piece of our puzzle is almost embedded in Walt Disney World's non-mosquito problem is I think that last piece has to be tacked, has to be tackled with the same level of intentionality that Walt Disney World applies every single day to prevent the happiest place on planet Earth from becoming one of the most bitten places on planet Earth. And to go there, I want us to look at a segment of Scripture, one of these passages that is written specifically to a group of people that need to hear this final piece. It's a group of people who, on one level, it's going to be hard to relate to. They're 2,000 years ago. They're in a different continent. They're in a different culture. They're they're completely different struggles. But yet, in the midst of the letter written to them, the advice given to them, strangely lines up with this idea of hyper-intentionality that's essential if you and I want to live those kind of hero lifestyles. Uh, It's found in the book of Hebrews or the letter of Hebrews, and as Jason referenced earlier in the app, it's already been preloaded for you, so I encourage you to go ahead and open it now. Um, If you haven't downloaded it, you'll be able to download it about the time I start reading from it, and if not, um, you, you can read it on the side screens behind me as we kind of dive in. But just to give you a little bit of backdrop, because it's important to know, the letter of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish people. That's why it's called the letter of Hebrews. And it's written by an individual that we don't know. It's one of the few books in the entire Bible that we do not know the original author. We know that as early as 90 AD, it was already being referenced by early church leaders. So we know it was an early book. It was written just a decade, a couple decades after Jesus dies and is resurrected. So It's in that New Testament period, but we don't know who writes it. What we do know from the letter, especially those kind of people who pay attention to this kind of stuff, know that the writer was brilliant. His command, his ability to write in the original language that Greek that this letter was written in is is almost like textbook museum quality. It's so incredibly well written. It's written almost the way you would expect a legal brief to be written today. There's, There's no holes in the logic. It's just, it's profound. But the whole point of this letter is a, kind of comes out of a circumstance that some Jewish people are facing in the Roman Empire. You see, they had taken a step to follow Jesus, and that step to follow Jesus had actually taken them out of step with the culture that they were surrounded by. That step to follow Christ meant they had immediately set themselves up against the legal structures of the day. To follow Jesus was illegal. To become a Christian was an, to make you an outlaw. 
And these people lived with the constant pressure, not just outright persecution of potentially having your family arrested or you arrested. They, they dealt with the daily subtle pressures of a, a system that was against them. They had trouble getting jobs. They were ridiculed. They were laughed at. They were the easy butt of every joke. They were the scapegoat for the culture. Whenever something was wrong, it was those people that the pundits would talk about. They were always villainized and demonized. And because of that pressure, because of that weight, what started to happen was some of them were starting to second-guess the choice they'd made. They had started to second-guess whether or not this was actually worth it. This is really, is this really worth all that we were having to go through? And the letter of Hebrews is written to a people who are asking that question. And imagine, maybe you're a Christian in this room. What would have to be going on in your life to make you second-guess your faith? And for maybe someone in here that's not a Christian or maybe exploring Christianity, think about your family. What would have to go on in your life for make you to turn your back on your family or the most deeply personal held belief that you have? What would you have to go through to be willing to step away from that? That's what they are finding themselves in the midst of. And so this letter is written, and you can sum up the letter of Hebrews really easily. The letter of Hebrews makes this simple point that Jesus is greater than your past beliefs and your present barriers. And that's kind of the central point of the, the letter of Hebrews. The, the idea that the belief that you have is bigger and better than all the beliefs that surround you. But that's not what I want to camp in on this morning, because he makes another point right after he makes that point, and it's that point that I think is essential for us if we want to take this heroic step into this lifestyle. It's after he's made that statement, after he's pointed to them, to Jesus, who's bigger and better than their present struggles and their past beliefs, he transitions and he says, there's one other piece that you need to know. Belief, while essential, is not enough alone to get you to the finish line. You need something else, he says. And he writes this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on love, towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. He makes the point, right? It's not just belief that's going to be essential for you to get to the end of your life, to have lived this heroic life, to, to have taken a step beyond and outside of status quo, to be different, to have that life that you desire to have when you first started following Jesus. He's like, there's more than belief that's needed. He points them to belonging, too. It's like there's a belief, and then there's a belonging. And in the midst of that, he unpacks what that group looks like. He's like, look, if you, if you say, hey, I want to make it to the end, then you need to realize that me, this thing, isn't enough. We need a we around this too. And, and he spends the next two verses unpacking what that we looks like. He unpacks for the church what the church is meant to look like. And even if you're here today and you're not sure where you fall in this whole realm of spirituality and Christianity, and you're still exploring it. What I can say is that if, if you don't, if you just grabbed hold of this kind of community, I believe that your life would be radically different. Even if you're not sure about the beliefs, if you got into this kind of belonging, you would see radical transformation in your life. Because this type of belonging that he lays out for us 
is rare and it's extraordinary, but it's essential for you and I if we want to live the life that we believe is filled with better decisions and fewer regrets. He begins what he, he points to this um, outcome of this kind of we, this group that we belong to. And then what happens is he says in verse 24 that um, love and good deeds starts to occur in our lives, that there is this like overflow of love and good deeds that's present in the life of people who belong to this kind of group, this kind of group that is constantly increasing in love and good deeds, not just love and attitude, not just not hating, not just in forgiving, not just in a disposition towards people, but not just attitude, it's action too, it's good deeds. It's a people who respond in a way that brings life. It's people who, when everyone else is lamenting and hating and lashing out, we come in to help, that we support, that we serve, this attitude and action that's present. And right before he lists these two outcomes, he sets it up by telling us how we get there. He says, the key to getting that love and good deeds, to seeing that increase, is to begin with to consider how to spur one another, which is an interesting phrase. I imagine the love and good deeds, that instantly connects with this, but to consider how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds is a little strange. I came across this article in the Wall Street Journal, uh, written in 2013, and it tells the story of a group of friends, 10, 10 guys specifically, who had been childhood friends. And in 1990, they'd circled back up, and it'd been a while since they'd been together. And one of them, a guy named Patrick Schultes, who was a lawyer, said, guys, um, I think if we're not careful, adulthood's just going to drive us apart. They were starting to live in different parts of the nation. They'd begun to pursue careers. They'd graduated. And, and Patrick was really, was really just considering how to spark relationships that go beyond geographical separation. And so what Patrick does as a lawyer, no offense to any lawyers in the room, is he drafts an agreement. This agreement is officially, legally titled Tag Participation Agreement. This Tag Participation Agreement, dated January 27, 1990, is made by and between the following 10 individuals. Here's what they begin to affirm. Whereas participants during those days so long past and all too brief that they spent at Gonzaga Preparatory School often did engage in a game that they called tag. Whereas the above participant, Joseph A. Tambari, has been it since June 1982 and remains it on the date herein first mentioned above, whereas for the sake of charity and to the above-named participant, Joseph Tambari, and in the spirit of sportsmanship, gamesmanship, and good fellowship, and the participants, um, the participants wish to resume the said game of tag pursuant to the covenants, agreements, terms, and conditions of this agreement. And what follows in these multiple pages is a legal definition of being it, a legal definition of tag, which is beautifully well-written, and um, the outlines of when this is to be played, how this is to be played, who can play it. All of this gets sketched out in the course of these documents where it settles on this page where all 10 of them are to sign in this legally binding agreement to every February play the game of tag. 
And what this has led to is over the last 28 years, they have played tag every single February. No matter where they live in America, no matter what's going on in their lives, tag happens February 1st at midnight, and it ends at the last day of February. And it has meant that no matter what is going on in someone's life, the game of tag has happened. Patrick, in fact, embodies this in a way that I think is really fitting. He, one of their friends, has a funeral for their father. Patrick shows up, and in the midst of this, his father's funeral, he walks up to a guy, tags him, and says, you're it. <laughs> Bruiser, the nickname of one of them, uh, was made it in San Francisco and immediately got in his car and drove straight to Seattle, broke into a friend's house while the friend was in a phone interview for a job, ran in the room, tagged him, and then ran out to his car. They have done this for 28 years. And this was so inspiring to people that it literally got picked up by a movie crew that this past month, I think the movie Tag came out. I'm not endorsing that movie. I have not seen that movie. But what that movie came from was a group of men who said, you know what? Friendship won't happen unless we're intentional. And what, what we see Patrick and his group of friends do is they take a step back and they consider. They say, how are we going to remain friends when everything about adulthood in our jobs, in our careers, in our lives, is causing us to drift apart. They're from East Coast all the way out to Hawaii. I mean, how does that happen? And it, it happens with a group of people who consider how to do it. Now, the writer of Hebrews is not encouraging you and I to enter into a tag participation agreement, although I have to be honest, I find that very fascinating and would love to have that. Just see me after the service, okay? All I'm saying. But I think what he's trying to point us to that these guys do is that there is a consideration. There is a thoughtfulness. There is an intentionality to that kind of friendship. A friendship that's not committed to playing tag, but a friendship that's committed to fostering and, 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 and pushing and straining towards love and good deeds in the lives of others. I think it's fascinating that the word there is spur, provoke, challenge, shake, call. Like, it's not gentle. This word spur that the writer of Hebrews used, it's literally meant to poke and provoke someone. Because we naturally drift to safe spaces. We naturally drift to status quo. And yet, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, if you want a type of relationship that's going to draw out the better me, no matter what that we looks like, he said, it has to happen. It has to happen in a group of people who are catalytic. It has to happen in a context of people who are willing to engage you and to challenge you and to, to push you to be better. A group of friends that don't want you to stand up on stage and look like an idiot. Which is literally actually what he's saying here. In fact, in the Greek, that's what was originally written. Don't have friends that make you look like idiots. Actually, what he's saying is he's saying, look, um, most of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, we have friends who are a constant reminder of where we've been. We have friends who operate like mirrors. They're constantly telling us who we already are. 
But the type of we, the type of community pictured in this passage is the type of friends who speak back who we want to become. Who are not just mirrors for where we are. They're mirrors calling out the best part of us inside of us. Who know that I want to be a better husband. Who know I want to be a better father. And aren't just comfortable with me in my place, in my space of life. But are constantly figuring out ways to encourage me and to challenge me to step into that place. To step into that me that I really want to be deep down inside. Who are reminding me of who I could become, not just reminding me of where I've been. Don't you want friends like that? Wouldn't you like to walk into a group of people that when they speak to you, when they open their mouths, you're not torn down, you're built up. You're not pulled back into a life that you used to have. You're lifted up to a higher plane of living. Don't you want that for your kids? I think for many of us, we have never experienced it. And so we just assume it's out there somewhere distant for some other group of extraordinary people. It's not for me. It's not what I can have. And yet, I long to be, and I believe that we can all be part of a community that calls out the best parts of us, not just telling us about the worst parts. That provokes us to love and good deeds. That make me want to love my family more. That make me want to be a better pastor. That make me want to be a better man. And that there is a group of we that when you get around them, they call that out. Do they make you uncomfortable sometimes? Yes. Will they interrupt you in the middle of a speech to hand you multiple microphones? Yes, they will. Because they want you to do well. They want you to thrive, not just survive. And it's not just a group of people who are catalytic. He goes on in verse 25. He says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. He calls out this other aspect. See, what's happening in the midst of this community is a group of people who have started following Jesus is that the pressures, the persecution, and the reality of, re- realities of life have started to creep into their calendar. And the time that they used to spend one another with conversation has started to evaporate. It's become something like, oh, we need to get together. Yeah, let's do that soon. Right? And that let's get together or let's, let's talk starts to drift away and starts to disappear. And it never materializes. And that's just, that's not even, honestly, that's not even a struggle. That's a first century struggle. That's a 21st century struggle, isn't it? That we live in a world where for all the digital devices that we have, for all the numerous ways of monitoring our calendars and, and being present with all the connectivity in our lives, we are the most unconnected generation in human history. And that is not me making up some statement. That has been documented time and time and time again. That this generation growing up right now in elementary and in middle and high school is the most lonely, disconnected generation in our nation's history. Because they live with the constant presence of a screen in front of them, not a conversation happening with them. And I I recognize for some of you that may press a little bit too hard. But he's saying, look, a, a group of people, that that kind of we happens in the context of calendar and conversation. I, I, I kind of framed it this way. 
I wanted to bring this up and when I had hands-free mic, it was a little easier. I think that for many of us, this is the two lifestyles we have. That many of us, when we, when we talk and we think about community, this is what we experience. It looks good. Right? This is my Facebook feed, my Instagram feed. She looks great. Oh, that, that vacation looks awesome. Oh, their kids look perfect. Everybody in that family picture smiling. Oh, they got a new house. Oh, they got a new job. Oh, look, their teeth got straight. I mean, right? And it's like Smile Club Direct. I mean, it's just like everything. Those hair extensions look good. That body looks good. They, they're, they're exercising the before and after. They've lost 757 pounds in the course of three weeks. You're like, what, what is going on? And then all the while, every once in a while, the light reflects off the screen, and then you see your face. And you're like, I don't have any of those things going for me. But we think we've got community, right? Because this is it. But the type of community that he's referring to happens beneath the surface. Where true substantive things happen. Right? He says, encourage one another. Where you're speaking words. Maybe this is going to offend some of you. I don't have time to have friends in my life who just want to complain about their life. I mean, can I just be real with you? I don't want to be surrounded by people who all they have in their life is complaints and gripes about their life. I love you. But here's the reality. I want to be surrounded by people who instead are constantly seeing the things that are wrong with they, their lives. They, they, they're focused on how they can make what's right in their life happen. Who want to take steps towards good, not just spending time griping. And here's the real reason. right? I'm just saying this thing out loud because some of you think this. You avoid people because you know if you got around them, they would drain you. You'd be like, ah, oh, man, I, I had a hard day. I do not want to talk to them because I know if I talk to them, all they're going to do is they're going to complain about him. They're going to talk about their job. They're going to X, Y, Z. I don't care what the weather's like. It's always going to be bad. I mean, you just fill in the blank, and you're like, I ain't got time for that. And so we avoid people. I'm just saying stuff you wouldn't say out loud, but you thought. And the reality is, is that we, that part of us, is pointing to this reality that we were created to have relationships that draw out the best of us, not drag us down with the worst of us. And that the social media phenomenon and the hyper-connectivity phenomenon that we have in our culture right now is this. It looks good on the surface, but there's nothing. How are you going to encourage someone when everything in their life is great? If all we publicly displaying to people in the world is all the great things, how are you going to encourage someone? You can't encourage someone if all you see is the great. Now, if we put the actual real stuff going on in our lives, people would defriend us. They would stop following us. They would accuse us of being oversharers. They'd be like, I don't want to know about your marriage. I don't want to know about whatever. Like, I don't want to see that picture. That's weird. Go to your doctor. Right? No, like, nobody would want to see that stuff. To find encouragement requires face-to-face Human-to-human interaction. It can happen on the phone, but it's, it goes beneath the surface, and it hits the substance. You don't want to bite into this, but this, you bite into it, and every time it brings life. 
And I think the picture of relationships that was being held out in this passage, this kind of we that he's referring to, is one that doesn't just have the surface. It's got substance. And there's something underneath it that makes us feel better. Do you have those people in your life when you leave them? I've got those people. I leave them, and I feel better because I was with them. Those are the people I want to be around. Those are the people, when those people text you and say, hey, you want to grab coffee? You're like, yes. And then you're calling the person you didn't want to be around. You're like, hey, something really important came up. I got to go. Right? We all do it. It's because we know we know implicitly in our life from experience there are people who bring you down and there are people who build you up. And you can be a teenager and know that. You can be an adult and know that. You can be a child and know that. My six-year-old knows that because she experiences it at school. And what the writer of Hebrews is holding out for us is a picture of a community of people that are both catalytic and that they're calling out the best of you, and yet they're committed to you even at the worst of you. That They're committed to being face-to-face. They schedule it. They have conversations. Not just, how are you doing? Good. Okay, great. But, hey, what's, what's, I know the last time we talked, you were, you were pressing into some of the struggles that you were having with your kids. What's going on? Can you give me an update? People who actually care. The art of listening and actually just soaking in a conversation with someone is a lost art. And I know that, to be honest, like I'm guilty of this. I struggle with this just like you do. But I know that if I want to get to the end of my life and to have lived the life that's filled with better decisions and few regrets, it will happen only if I've made sure not that I've kept my beliefs grounded and that I've continued to lean in that, but that I've also been surrounded and I belong to a group of, group of people who are catalytic and committed to me, committed to calling that out in me, challenging me and pressing me to push forward. And I think that this type of relationship, the way it starts personally is that you and I, the, the first and most difficult step is that we agree to become that type of person. Every single one of us, hands down, would want to be that type would want to be in that kind of group of friends. What's harder is to be that type of friend. That's a little bit more commitment. That's a little bit more conversation. We all want to be able to call somebody, right, like whether it's cheers from decades ago or whether it's how I met your mother or friends, right? There's throughout, like, our recent history, there's always a television show holding that kind of relationship out. We all want to go to a place where somebody knows our name, someone knows us and what's going on in our life. But that means we have to know their name, too. We have to know what's going on in their life, too. So I think the first commitment from a personal level is just to say, you know what? I want to become that kind of friend. I'm going to be someone who intentionally this week, when I get around my group of friends, I'm going to say things that build up, not tear down. That I'm going to look for ways to encourage them. I'm going to look to call out the best in some of my friends. But then the second step, and for some of you, maybe you're like me and you're an introvert. This might be your harder step, the step to actually step in and belong. As an introvert, I am not necessarily looking for a party to show up at. I know some of you just want to, you have parties wherever you go. I am a person who knows if I'm about to walk in a party, I've got my exit plan, right? And so for me, I have to be intentional about taking a step to belong to groups like that, where I want to make sure that I'm keeping my calendar clear and willing to have conversations, even if it's 
a bit of an inconvenience for me in the things I want to get done. Where someone's like, hey, I'm struggling. I'm like, oh, man. I had this, this, and this to do today. Okay, let's talk. And to be willing to put that on the back burner and to value people more than I value what I'm getting done or what I want to get done or what I want to get accomplished. That's why even as a church, this is something we're passionate about. We've woven this in to the fiber of who we are, and even as we move into the fall, we are rolling out more things out of this. That the first piece, I want just to encourage you. So this, this, I can give you a step for everybody today. The first step is, did you know that we pray during each month, we pray for whosoever birthday it is. We pray for them the entire month. Every time our team comes together, we pull your name out, and we start praying things over you. And we pray good things over you. We pray the things that you would, you would want prayed over you. We're praying those things that your grandma's praying over you, Right? That we do that every single month, but we can't do that if we don't know your birthday, right? And so maybe for some of you today, your first step, you've been coming to Encounter Church for a little while, and you've been able to comfortably sit on the perimeter, and you just want to kind of like put your toe out a little bit. Then inside of starting point on the app or starting point in the physical glass space as you walk out, there is something inside that starting point icon that says birthdays, and just click on it. Put your name and your birthday. You don't have to give us your email. You don't have to give us any of your information. If you'd like to get a card from us, put your address. We'll send you a card. But for you to take that first step in knowing that there's someone who's, even if you don't see it, that someone's praying for you and believing and joining with you. For some of you, I've had this conversation recently where someone's like, I love this church. I love what's going on in this church. How do I get connected? How do I go in a little bit further? You, I've, you got my birthday. You're praying for me. I know that. And I would say for some of you today, your next step could be clicking on starting point and going to the second line, which says something around serving. Did you know that every single Sunday, everything that happens in this building, with the exception of what physically right now is happening on the stage around the microphone, everything that happens in this building happens because of you. A group of people committed, a committed we, who every single week show up no matter what's been going on in the course of life, what's been going on in the course of their schedule, and they step in and they serve. Some of them are shaping the lives of preschoolers, elementary, or teenagers every single week or twice a month. Some of them are creating um, an incredible coffee bar that you enjoy, that you sit in here with your warm coffee with no kid pulling on you distracting you, and you have your, like, safe, happy place because of a committed we that maybe you've never even noticed who get here early and who will stay after you leave to make that moment happen for you. What I love about being part of the church is at the end of the day, the church is not built on me. It's not built on any staff. It's a group of we's working together, believing together. The lights are on right now because of your generosity. Kids will leave today wanting to come back to church next week because of their generosity in serving. The reason I say that that's the best step to take is because when you kind of join arms together, when you do something together, it's a whole lot less threatening than having to sit face-to-face -face and say, tell me your personal struggles in some kind of small group. 
Serving is one of the best ways to get connected, to get known, and to know others at this church. And we have a place and a space, I guarantee it, for every single one of you that wants to serve. We've been growing by about 50 people every single Sunday. Like, we are exploding in our growth. We have family environments that we've created that have the best people on planet Earth serving because we recognize that what both the Bible and current research is pointing is that when a child grows up, when a child grows up and they have a positive experience at church beyond just mom and dad, like they just, if they just have one positive adult influence in their life, they will both enter and exit adolescence far more healthier, far more stable, far more grounded than their peers without that one church adult. I don't know about you, but I got a six-year-old who sometimes transforms into a 16-year-old, and I want her to be grounded during adolescence. And so I'm trying to surround her with as many capable adults as possible because I'm hoping there's some kind of exponential thing that's going to play out in the midst of that. But the reason that happens is because of adults like you who said, you know what, teenagers like you who said, you know what, I'm going to step in. So even if you're here today and you don't believe, you're not even sure what you believe, we've created spaces for you. Even if you're here and you can only be here twice a month, we have a space for you. We believe belonging is so essential to our flourishing as humans that we've made sure in everything that we've done that we've created a space for you to get connected and to belong. And not only that, we've actually been working on something that will roll out later this fall where people who come in who maybe are in the midst of kind of pressure situations or dealing with different struggles in life can find a group of people who, who have a special ability, who have a special passion, passion to encourage. So this fall, we're going to roll something out called the Encouragers. And it'll be a group of people that we're creating content for right now that we will train, that we will enable. And that, those groups of individuals will be able to sit down with men and women and teenagers who are walking through life struggles, who are dealing with anxiety, who are, who are pressing into addiction, and to have someone who's been trained to walk alongside of them to help them move towards a life of better decisions and fewer regrets. And some of you, I know because I, I've spent time with you, have a passion to make that kind of difference in people's lives. And if that's you, that third, it says encouragers interest form, just put your name. You won't be signing up, but you'll let us know that you're interested in being a part of it. We believe at the end of the day that it is essential that the best version of me is found inside of a committed catalytic we that my life has bore that out, that I imagine if I were to press into your life and you would start to describe the people who've been so influential and impactful for you, that what you would describe are those kind of people who are catalytic and who are committed. And the whole movement of this is ended with, and all the more as you see the day approaching, that this group of we actually causes our eyes to lift beyond just the moment that we're in and to see our life in its entirety. To see our life from more than what's going on in this season, but to see every season. There was a, a study done in Northwestern that had studied 80-year-olds, and there was a group of them that uh, they called the super-agers. They had the cognitive abilities of 50- and 60-year-olds in their 80s. And what they discovered that made them different and unique, it wasn't their genetics. What set these super-agers, these 80-year-olds who had the capacity, the sharpness of 56-year-olds, um, what set them apart was the presence of positive, warm friendships in their life. 
that people in their 80s were experiencing this fruition of a life that had been surrounded by warm, positive friendships, these catalytic, committed people who would wrap their arms around them. And what was happening was that it was literally paying dividends into the future of who they were. Because God has created us for this kind of community. And I think the writer of Hebrews just wanted to end with this statement of like, where do you want to see your life end up? When you picture you at the end, what do you imagine you to be? Who do you imagine you to be? And what I think fairly honest, honestly about us, because I've been in those situations where people are passing away, or I've been in rooms where people have hospice called in, and I have never, ever witnessed or watched or had a conversation around the quality of what they had in their life at that time. No one ever pulled out pictures of their home on the Cape. No one ever pulled out pictures of their car. No one ever pulled out pictures of their degrees. And Hear me. Those are all great. What it always comes down at the end of life is not about the quantity of the what in your life. It's about the quality of the who in your life. That when I picture me as a sharp, good-looking, 87-year-old man with the mental dexterity of a 45-year-old, right, and flowing hair because they'll have fixed it by then, When I picture that future version of me, what I very clearly imagine around me is not where I'm going to be living, not what I'm driving, not the clothes that I'm wearing, and not even partially how good I look as an 85-year-old man. What I'm picturing around me is the who's and the quality of the who's, that woman that I said yes to, that, that I'm still saying yes to when I'm 87 and 88, and that our relationship then is even better than it is now, that it's even richer and fuller that I love her, I find her more attractive when we're both beautifully wrinkly, that I'm still mesmerized by her beauty then that I am just as much now. Or, and that, that little girl in my life who's a six-year-old who wrote me this poem this week that started off with these words, Daddy, bald, 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 so bald, not hairy, really, really bald, Really shiny, so shiny, bald. Really, really bald. (laughs) That that little girl who would sit down and picture my face and to write out her expression of love to me in a way that caused me to have a little bit of insecurity and to say, is it really that shiny? But I imagine that little six-year-old girl when she's 56 and 66, and I want to think that I still have an incredible relationship with her then too, that she's still thinking about me then the way she thinks about me now, that I'm, I am her superhero man in her life, that I'm strong, that I'm dependable, that I'm there for her. I want when I get to the end of my life for that to be the relationship that I have with her too. And that I have friends who know me, who love me, who've challenged me, who have led me and have pushed me to a place where I am the man I've become because I had a we in my life that believed in me. And that this ultimately is what the writer of Hebrews holds up for all of us. That if you and I want to be the person that you and I want to become, that it's only going to happen when we find ourselves in a community that's catalytic and committed. Let's pray.